hearts are mortgaged And our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we are Mother Nature's wage Just inside She is taking to the streets To release her secret rage Just inside Welcome to the Convergence on Voice America. This is your host, Dr. Kurt Johnson of Unity Earth and the Interspiritual Dialogue Network. This is the second of two Voice America specials entitled Our Moment of Choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged. So let me tell you about what that all means. Our Moment of Choice is an award-winning book from the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, wherein 43 major global thought leaders weighed in on the future of our very challenged world. We joined you in 2020 with eight New York Times best-selling authors from that book, Our Moment of Choice, and we've had over 53,000 listeners to those broadcasts, so we thank you for that. In 2021, we are linking this question of our moment of choice with the message of a second book, one that is really making waves, Atlas Hugged by Dr. David Sloan Wilson. Atlas Hugged is a response and counterproposal to Anne Rand's famous, if not infamous, book, Atlas Shrugged, published in 1957, which has had over 7 million readers. It became the icon and gospel for selfish individualism, greed is good, competition, conflict, and tribalism, a creature of its own turbulent time. But we're now historically in a different time, and that's a time that makes so many so-called truths of the 1940s and 1950s obsolete and simply no longer true. So this is a moment of choice. A recent commentary on David Sloan Wilson's novel, Atlas Hug, said this, a response and counterproposal to Anne Rand's controversial worldview from a celebrated scientist in the form of a sequel to her own novel would be big news. And this is it. In our first broadcast in March, which is easily located at the Voice American Virgin show page, Dr. Wilson joined us for conversations with Dr. David Corton, celebrated author of The Great Turning, When Corporations Rule the World and Change the Story, Change the World. And then we had a wonderful dialogue with Dr. Wilson and the creators of the important book and film, The Reunited States of America. In this second special, we join the author of Atlas Hugged with Dwayne Elgin of the book and film Choosing Earth and with Jude Curavan of The Whole World View and The Cosmic Hologram. We then follow with David Wilson talking with Terry Patton, integral thought leader and recently author of The New Republic of the Heart, and with Anne-Marie Forhoof of the Hague Center for Global Governance, Innovation, and Emergence. We close with a discussion about the meaning and importance of stories and how they are always driving our history with the choices they present. 
For that discussion, we have Dr. Linnea Lombard of New Stories and Great Transition Stories, Dr. Robert Atkinson, founder of the Story Commons and author of the Nautilus Award-winning book, The Story of Our Time, and Tayana David from the Circle of Wisdom. So let's go over now to our discussions with Dwayne Elgin, Jude Curavan, and David Sloan Wilson. Full bios for all of them are at the Voice America show page, and you can learn more about Dwayne at DwayneElgin.com and about Jude at JudeCuravan.com. I'm here with Dwayne Elgin and Jude Curavan and David Sloan Wilson. And so let's start with Jude. So Jude, tell us about your work and how it relates to this moment of choice that we're talking about between Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged. Well, thank you, Kurt and, and Dwayne and David. It's great to be with you guys. I mean, for me, I feel that my work's been a lifelong journey to this point. And it's to this point that indeed is our moment of choice. We've got to a point where our dysfunctional behaviours have brought us to an unsustainable situation. And if we're to survive and thrive as a species, this truly is a time when we have to make very different choices than we've made hitherto. And the choices that we've made hitherto, in my perspective, have been based on an incorrect worldview. And so my whole life has been asking a question, what is the true nature of reality? What is our place in the cosmos? And so my work interweaves leading edge science across many different areas of research with ancient wisdom, universal spiritual traditions, indigenous wisdom teachings, and my own experiences. And my own experiences are of a world where indeed Atlas hugs, <laughs> and not a world where Atlas shrugs. So my journey to this point, I think, is to support and to facilitate us healing ourselves as a species from traumas that we've sustained within our own psyche, but also we've sustained in terms of our relationships um, with our planetary home and all her children because of our limited and fragmented perspectives of the nature of reality itself. So my last book, which is called The Cosmic Hologram, aimed to show the evidence that for a very different and a radical different cosmology and worldview, but one that is actually convergent and integral with all of the other threads of wisdom um, that I mentioned. Um, so when that was published four years ago, um, I co-founded a movement called Whole Worldview. I didn't realize I was co-founding a movement. I thought I was just writing a book, but I know as Dwayne has done many times, and I know as David is now, these movements come when, our, when we're ready for them, when people are ready to hear a different story. And it seems to me that we're at a moment where we need to re-story if we're to restore our relationships. Um, and so my sense is that the work that David and Dwayne and, and you and all of us are doing at the moment is timely to support us making a very different choice and very different choices that are far more supportive of wholeness and well-being and based on love and based on that innate knowingness that everything we call reality is interconnected. So 
that's what's brought me to this point, I guess. And I'd like to sort of go on from that to perhaps share a little bit of why I feel that the new, ancient new story of, of wholeness and oneness and unity is actually one that within which Atlas hugged is our natural way of behaving. Whereas the old story that we've been telling, Atlas shrugged, is the natural way of behaving. So mainstream science has, has maintained basically that we live in a world that is solely material and made up of separate things and that the evolutionary processes that have brought us to this point are in essence random, accidental, and ultimately that somehow our immaterial minds arise from our physical brains. Now, this is effectively the worldview of Atlas Shrugged, of separateness, of competition, and a universe without inherent meaning other than imposed on by human will. And that perspective is important because our beliefs drive our behaviours, our worldviews, whether correct or not, drive our behaviours. And such belief in material separatism and, in essence, a world of competition and conflict have driven our dysfunctional behaviours that's now resulted in existential threats to ourselves and our planetary home and, and all the life we share it with. Yet, we're discovering that such a limited and fragmented view of reality is fundamentally wrong. It's literally turned on its head. Instead of that old, dysfunctional, fragmented perspective, a new understanding is emerging. And as I mentioned earlier, it's one that is not just converging with ancient and universal wisdom and spiritual and indigenous teachings, it actually integrates with them. It, it integrates and transcends into a whole new story of who we are and the nature of reality. And that starts to perhaps answer deeper questions, not just of how reality is as it is, but a deeper exploration of why and what is our purpose in this far more grand and wonderful perspective of, 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 of reality. So what is it telling us? Well, first of all, it's telling us that um, the world we see, the physicalized world, is emerges from deeper non-physical realms of causation and meaning. That instead of its appearance, the appearance is an emergent sense of something more profound and deeper. And it essentially, instead of a great thing, as Sir James Jeans once said, it's more a great thought in the mind of the cosmos. So on this basis, mind and consciousness aren't something we have, they are literally what we and the whole world are. And our universe exists and evolves, not just as an interconnected whole, but an ultimately unified entity and embodies an evolutionary impulse, which I'm sure Duane will want to speak to because it's an evolutionary impulse that is inherent within this reality that began 13.8 billion years ago, not in the implied chaos of the Big Bang, which wasn't big and it certainly wasn't a bang. It was minute, but it was ordered. It was exquisitely fine-tuned. It was meaningfully brought into being. 
And ever since, for the last 13.8 billion years, it's undertaken a journey of experience and exploration from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of individuated self-awareness. But it's far more than its solely material appearance and its appearance and its apparent separation. That its reality is real, but part of a much greater and unified and multidimensional whole. And separation itself is illusory. And so much of the behaviors of Atlas Shrugged come from that appearance of separation. And yet it's fundamentally wrong. So on that basis, and it, just to take a step back, because what it's also showing, I'm writing another book at the moment called Gaia, Her Story. And it's the story of a living planet in a living universe. And what I'm finding is that as life, and I'm using the word life, as I know Dwayne does, far more than biological organisms, but literally the whole of reality is the living, pulsing, meaningful wholeness. That as life matures, as this journey from simplicity to complexity has gone on, and it becomes more complex, it's progressively cooperative rather than competitive. And any competition is there to balance, to, to retain balance and health instead of conflict and shrugging at another's loss. So we're now at a point where it seems to me, unless we move beyond shrugging, we may not survive, let alone thrive. So this indeed is our moment of choice. And as David writes to choose hugging, and I love hugging, I love hugging. I wish we could do more of it, and we will soon. And as Dwayne writes to choose earth, we can come together. We can come together to link up and lift up. We can come together to choose life and choose loving cooperation. And to just end, I'd like to sort of add another sentence to the incredible eloquence that both Dwayne and David bring to their work, is that at this pivotal moment, unity is our power. Diversity is our strength, and love in action is our hope. And surely Atlas hugged, and surely choosing Earth is literally love in action, which is our collective hope at this moment of choice. Well, Jude, thank you so much. And uh, so let's go right over then to uh, Dwayne Elgin. Ellie, thank you, uh, Jude, and thank you, Kurt and David. Uh, what a wonderful conversation already. Jude, I, I so appreciate your, your insight that we live on a living planet in the context of a living universe. And uh, in the past few hundred years, we've regarded the universe as essentially uh, mostly dead matter and empty space. And now we're beginning to see the universe as a unified whole. Uh, quantum physics indicates that. And as a unified whole, it's been described as a super organism. The universe is an organism, a living organism, uh, but it's supersized, uh, extraordinary uh, organism that has been regenerated from a deeper aliveness. So um, 
turning to the work I've been doing, I've been looking at the evolution of the species at this moment of choice. And uh, to look at our future, I've brought three perspectives together, um, looking wide, deep, and long. Uh, look wide uh, at way beyond just climate change to species extinction, resource depletion, and other factors. Look deep, look beyond the uh, superficial material realms and include um, <clears throat> consciousness. And uh, the, uh, it's estimated that 95% of the universe is invisible. And so let's bring in the invisible dimensions of consciousness and aliveness that are already permeating and around us. And then look long, um, look beyond the next five or 10 years to uh, the next 50 years um, and begin to get a broader perspective. So the, the worldview that we've had in the past has been uh, narrow, shallow, and short. And if our view of things is narrow, shallow, and short, we're going to have a very diminished sense of ourselves and our future journey. So with this wider view, uh, uh, we can begin to look and see three pathways into the future at this moment of choice for the species. One pathway is uh, business as usual that uh, many people are seeing will lead to chaos and collapse. It's already beginning to uh, happen. So one pathway is a pathway of chaos and collapse. Another pathway is where we take control of ourselves and the earth. And it's a pathway of authoritarianism empowered with artificial intelligence. And that pathway has a strong foundation in, uh, in China, in Russia, uh, emerging in India, perhaps. Uh, so authoritarianism is very real and chaos and collapse are very real. And then that brings us to a third pathway, that of um, transformation that of uh, a great transition for the human family. And uh, that pathway is, uh, as I look ahead, is a very demanding uh, road ahead. And I've looked uh, at the next half century and in a nutshell, I would describe it as, as follows. Uh, the decade of the 2020s is a time of great unraveling. Uh, the institutions, values, ideas of the past, as you indicate, Jude, are beginning to unravel. And with that, the institutional uh, fabric is beginning to come apart. That's the decade of the 2020s. The 2030s unraveling then means that the world can't hold itself together as it has, and we experience then a great fall. Um, this is a time of uh, when institutions are not simply unraveling, they're catastrophically coming apart and humanity is thrown uh, into chaos, essentially. By the 2040s, uh, we go beyond a great fall and into a time of great sorrow and because the, the wounded earth uh, extends... Um, so deep, so far, that it's a time uh, a great sorrow. And we realize we're never going back to the world that, that uh, we knew in the past. And with, with that recognition, with a sense that um, we're not going to return to the past, that uh, we must, we're being forced to move into an unknown future. And after then, the, the great uh, fall, 
and the great sorrow, uh, we then come to the great awakening. And that's when we say, well, we must pull together as a human family. Uh, that is our ultimate uh, choice. And with that uh, pulling together intention, uh, we then move into a time of choosing the earth as our home freshly, collectively. And with that choice, we then began a, begin a long process of healing the earth, the trauma of the past, and, and moving into the further future. I want to be very clear, though, that the three pathways, chaos and collapse, authoritarianism, and great transition, all three pathways, I think, are going to persist into the far future. They're not going to leave us. We're going to have to deal with those elements of uh, our world uh, because that's essentially foundational to who we are right now. So to then the question is, well, how in the world does the human family move from the division and the uh, dysfunctional paradigm of the past of a dead universe in, forward? And we begin to say, well, we're not simply uh, in a struggle for survival in a non-living universe. We're le learning to live instead in a living universe. And we're learning to engage the larger aliveness uh, that we embody, that we are in the superorganism of a living uh, universe. So then how do we come as a species to that collective understanding? Well, it was our ability to communicate that got us here in the first place, that got us from awakening hunter-gatherers 10,000 years ago to the verge of a planetary civilization right now. And if we look at the tools of communication that we have, they're extraordinary. Um, the people of the Earth, 60% of the people of the Earth have access to the Internet right now. By the end of the decade of the 2020s, it will grow from 60% to 75%, it's estimated. That means we already possess the tools of collective communication that could allow us to come together and choose this moment of transition to a more promising future. And that transition, I like to uh, explore in terms of the following story. Uh, we're just learning to grow up as a human family. I've gone around the planet uh, giving talks. And again and again, when I ask people, I, get, I ask for a vote. What life stage uh, are we in as a human family? Are we behaving like toddlers, teenagers, adults, or elders? Again and again, uh, around the earth, uh, people immediately say, well, we're, we're behaving like teenagers. We're behaving like adolescents. Well, that's good news in my mind, because that means we're on the verge uh, of the next step in maturation, which is our early adulthood. And one of the key characteristics of adulthood is that we begin to privilege the well-being of the rest of life, other people, and so on, uh, before we give so much attention selfishly to ourselves, we instead extend it compassionately to the world as a whole. So um, my sense is that our moment of choice will mobilize our tools of mass communication, we'll, we'll work through the, uh, the trauma and the difficulties of these years and come to a new understanding of who we are and where we're going, 
we're, we're living in a living universe. We're learning to live in that living universe. And what an extraordinary journey. It isn't a struggle for survival in the context of a great deadness. It is rather learning to live in that great uh, aliveness. So that, to me, is uh, uh, summarizing the pathway ahead and the choice that we have uh, right now as a species. Well, a big double while then. So what could be more fitting then to invite in David Sloan Wilson, uh, the author of Atlas Hug, to both respond and then engage uh, with Dwayne and Jude. So, David, over to you. Yeah, so double wow. I'll hope to make it a triple wow. We'll see if I succeed. And, and, uh, and there's so much to say. Um, I like to begin with a wise statement by my friend um, uh, Jeff Janung, who said that what we need is four things, like the four legs of a strong table. Uh, those things are uh, uh, spirituality, art, technology, and science. What we do has to be based on a combination of spirituality, art, technology, and science. And uh, the evolutionary leaders, of which we are proud members, are very strong on the spirituality dimension. That's their strong suit. And what unites them specifically is the idea of conscious evolution and the whole earth as the object of our selection, basically. Uh, we're working towards a global superorganism, and that requires consciously evolving towards it. That is the spiritual message, which I think unites um, all of us. Uh, we're somewhat strong in science, some more than others. Uh, we're pretty strong in art. We, we, we know we get storytelling um, and, and the other arts. And so, uh, and so somewhat strong in science, although I'm going to get to that in a minute. And then our technology is, you know, uh, you know it's variable, of course, but uh, um, uh, all of these things could be strengthened. Um, I've always viewed my contribution to the ELs as my scientific credentials. I'm a mainstream scientist and um, evolutionary um, um, biologist, and uh, and Kurt uh, um, credits me for for basically uh, in my field of evolution. You know, I mean, for many people, that means selfish genes, the whole selfish gene variety, which is not favorable to um, our view of evolution, but now so much has changed. And as Kurt loves to put it, it's like sailing with the wind rather than, than um, against the wind. But all of that requires basically uh, conveying very, very new material in, in, uh, in the science. And, and that's the main point I wanna make. Uh, I make it in my novel, which I'm about to get to, but before we even get to uh, um, um, Atlas Hugged, what we can say in terms of the real world is that, I like to put it, the enlightenment is still in progress. If you look at the enlightenment, it was the dawn of reason and science in the 1600s. It resulted in what we regard as the sciences today, mathematics, physics, chemistry. There we got the 1700s, the 1800s, Darwin's theory of evolution, not until the late 19 hundreds, the development of evolutionary thinking and biology, the 20th century with respect to human culture, 
Well, that brings us right up to today. And so there's so much that has been happening in the scientific front over the last 10, 20, 30 years, which we need to digest and assimilate. And it, and it adds to the storehouse that we have before. When I listen to you both, and you're both very literate, very science savvy folks, we got a lot of physics and astronomy, astro astronomy, cosmology, all great, great, great stuff and evolution and so on and so forth. But there's still more that I will get to that is required for us to accomplish our goal of, um, of uh, conscious, conscious evolution. And I'm trying to think now about where to go with, with this. And I think I'm just gonna go now with science mode. I and haven't even gotten to my own novel yet, Atlas um, Hug, but I soon will. And the, the best way for me to phrase what's like new about this, when we think about hugging and everything that it represents, love, um, all everything which can be described with the term pro-social. Pro-social is anything oriented towards the welfare of others and uh, our society as a whole. It's what we want, it's what we're working towards, it's what we describe as an advanced stage. And I think that's a very important part of your thinking is that we're kind of growing from some kind of immature stage, which is not so pro-social to a more advanced stage that that is more uh, pro-social. That's what we mean by waking up in a sense or growing up and, and um, um, but I feel that that narrative, as motivating as it is, actually fails to point out a very a general feature of pro-sociality, love, hugging, pro-sociality in all of its forms. And that is its vulnerability. It's vulnerability that whenever we give, then we make ourselves vulnerable. Hugging would be the quintessential example of that. When you hug someone, you open your arms to them. You expose your most vulnerable parts to them. And if they wish to attack you while you are hugging them, then they would have open access to you. And so it's the vulnerability of hugging and all of it that represents, which tells you why it is not that widespread in nature. When we ask the question, what's natural? And we ask that question of the natural world, we find that the world is full of suffering. If we want a narrative, it should be the Buddhist narrative, that the world is full of suffering and that suffering is caused by craving and greed. And, and we need to overcome what's natural, not only in the animal world, but in the, in the human world. And so no matter what stage humanity might be at, the vulnerability of hugging and everything that it represents will never go away. And it exists at all scales, at the scale of the individual person and their relationship. If they're going to be a loving, hugging person, they need to be in some kind of safe environment so that they won't be vulnerable. And every human being is like a snail or a turtle that's capable of extending themselves in a loving direction and also capable of pulling into their shells when it makes them too vulnerable, when it is unsafe. And so 
it's less a matter of stages than a matter of creating safe and secure social environments at all scales so that, so that we can all come out of our shells and to openly express what's in every person. It's natural for us to be pro-social. It's natural for us to withhold that in dangerous situations. And yes, it's natural for us to take the other side and to be anti-social when that is what works in a Darwinian sense. And so what this leads to is the need for an enlightened form of social engineering. And social engineering, when you say it to most people, has a creepy feeling because, because it invokes the idea of being done to, you know, powerful people doing things to others beyond their uh, uh, control. But as soon as we think of social engineering as what we construct for ourselves and construct loving environments that make it possible for us to be pro-social and the need to do that at all scales, that's our project, basically. That's what we need to bring about. And we need science, technology, art, and spirituality in order to do it. In the first place, we must be motivated that the whole earth is the highest good. That's where the spirituality comes in. But then there's all of that science and technology and so on. Now, against that background, when I try to convey all of this to an audience, as I just have, it's like asking someone to drink from a fire hydrant. They just get drenched. And it's just, you know, they might be interested or some, but, you know, it's some, the process of internalizing all of that is very difficult. And that's true of my own efforts as well, my own non, nonfiction books. And, but there's something about a story. There's something about a story that makes it possible to imbibe a worldview, a worldview better than anyone's effort at nonfiction uh, or writing. And we really, I mean, that's positive. That's why art is so important. And there's actually, you can say, I mean, scientifically, we are a storytelling animal. We've always, our worldviews have been communicated through, through stories. And so all of this recent science stuff, in addition to presenting it like scientifically as, as we do, and I do especially, to communicate it through a story, the entire cosmology through a story that's science-based and yet also a fictional cosmology, that's new. And that's what I've attempted to do with Atlas. Uh, hard. And I'll finish up by just comparing Atlas Hug to Atlas Shrugged in its effect. And what we can say about the last 70 years, I'm being quite precise here, is all cultures have their stories. And the most common stories, they're so common that we don't see them. I love the proverb, you know, the water is the one thing that the fish can't see. The f water is the one thing that the fish can't see. When you're truly immersed in something, then you become unaware of it. And the dominant story of the last 70 years, the water that we can't see or we have difficulty seeing is the story of individualism. Not just Ayn Rand, because it comes in so many different 
forms. And Jude, you pointed that you pointed that out. The atomistic individual, the individual is the fundamental unit. All things social must be reduced to some form of individual self-interest, penetrates economics, penetrates the social sciences, penetrated my own field of evolution. That's what selfish genes are all about, and penetrated everyday life. That's why Margaret Thatcher could say, there is no such thing as society, only individuals and their, and their families. So water, so individualism is the water of our, uh, that we've been swimming in for the last 70 years. And Ayn Rand gave expression to that in Atlas Hard so successfully that it sold and continues to sell many, many thousands of copies every year. She herself said, and she, she did both philosophizing and fiction writing, and it was her fiction writing that was most successful. She said, art is the essential medium for the communication of a moral ideal. Art is the essential medium for the communication of a moral ideal. And so to take our, this new worldview and to communicate it through art, that's the, that's the goal of Atlas Hugged, building upon, of course, it's really nice that it could be framed as a sequel to her novel and an antidote to her novel, but wouldn't it be great if not only through that effort, but through the efforts of all of us, that this worldview, this new worldview, could become the water that we can't see that common, and to be underpinned with the science and the technology so that we can proceed not to, and here, Dwayne, I'm going to push back. I have a more optimistic vision than, than you. And Atlas Hugged, there's a worldwide transformation in 100 days. There's a soft landing. The butterfly emerges like a from the from the from the caterpillar, and it's thanks to technology. It's thanks to technology that that could um, uh, that could that could happen. And if I might, Kurt, do I have enough time to read one passage from? from yeah, we've uh, got plenty of time here to move on to discussion and share that. Absolutely. Okay, so um, uh, where we are now is we're. Uh, um, so the hero of Atlas Hugged is the grandson of the protagonist of Atlas Shrugged, John Galt III. His soulmate is Eve Eden. Uh, she, as you, her name suggests, comes from a devout Christian family. That's her fiction. Um, objectivism, Ayn Rand's philosophy, is John Galt's, John Galt III's fiction. They're both rebelling against it. What they want is a moral worldview that uh, can be based entirely on science, as she puts it, a way to tell right from wrong without peering through a tissue of lies. Uh, John Galt is just at the beginning of his 100-day transformation, which is a trek from uh, uh, Wyoming to Philadelphia, where he's going to have a climatic duel of speeches with his father, who is a Rush Limbaugh uh, character. But now at the beginning of these treks, he is at the home of, his, of Eve. Eve is in, in, in Ecuador. In fact, she is on a dangerous mission that, uh, that um, John knows nothing about. So Eve is with, with um, uh, um, John is with Eve's parents, devout Christians who nevertheless are very accepting of John because he's so wonderful to their daughter, 
uh, Eve, but now they're just wondering about what is this all about? What is this all about? Um, uh, so for the Edens, the image on the screen and the events leading up to it changed their demeanor towards me entirely. Before, I fit into their world without requiring many just, uh, adjustments on their part. I was good to their daughter, enjoyed working side by side with the men, and relished being treated as a member of the family. They had long stopped questioning Eve's religious beliefs and extended that courtesy to me, especially since we both enjoyed partaking in the community aspects of church life. From the moment I sprang the trap on my father, they were forced to think about me in a new way. Suddenly, I was all over the news, and strangers were calling them, trying to dig up dirt on me. At first, they found it easy to be protective, but they couldn't help but wonder what all of this was about and how it related to their own faith. The values that I embraced were broadly Christian, at least in the most expansive form of peace on earth and goodwill towards all human. But I never mentioned God or Christ. Now, after two months of incessant news coverage and commentary, including some members of the religious right doing their best to demonize me, an historic event appeared to be unfolding in the space of a single day on their widescreen monitor. Around the world, people were converting to a new something that wasn't a religion. By becoming true objectivists, they were transcending all current religious and national identities, and the whole thing centered around me. What did that make me? Some kind of modern Jesus? What were the symbols on the front of my windbreaker, which I was wearing like a uniform? What were the dot and the circle supposed to mean? Why was the American flag placed below the earth? Where was the cross? Joseph and Mary were not agile with words, so all of this just hung in the air for me to infer. How could I tell them that the greening of the earth and the whirling odometer on the screen was like the origin and spread of Christianity? that it was based on a new cosmology more in tune with our age, that it was taking place several thousand times faster thanks to electronic communication, that they should be rejoicing because it was in the same spirit as Christian love. As for me being comparable to Jesus, I was merely a conduit that cultural change was rushing to, and perhaps he was too. By now I had lost any sense of ego. I saw myself as a node in a social process and only hoped that I could be strong and wise enough to fulfill my role. In my weaker moments, I wish it could have happened to someone else. All of this just hung there in the air as Mary invited us to sit around the dinner table. So this is a, a portrayal of what you have also pointed out. None of this could be possible without the electronic age, without the internet age. No global superorganism without without electronic um, uh, uh, communication. Nobody could have imagined, even 300 years ago, nobody could have imagined the, all the nations of the earth coming together to cooperate um, uh, with each other. This is recent in so many ways uh, that um, uh, it's just new on the face of the earth what we're, what we're uh, trying to, uh, uh, what we're trying to do. And I, I'll finish uh, by just making the point that even when we consider our own efforts, what we find, this is not just the three of us, but all of the ELs and then many, many, many others, is you find people that have converged upon this awareness, this whole earth ethic, it becomes passionate, it becomes their life's work. They succeed to a degree. We write our books, I'm including this in myself in this, we write our books, 
we form our movements. And so all of that is great, but not good enough. And in each and every case, what we find is, is that our efforts come up against boundaries, boundaries. And to pick a biological metaphor, that's what species are. When a species originates, it spreads on the basis of its success, and then it comes up against boundaries. That's its geographical distribution beyond which it is unknown. And each and every one of our efforts is a, is a cultural species, you might think of it, that has an origination and spreads to a degree and then comes up against boundaries much less, much smaller than is what is needed. And so we need to go to a new level of organization in which our respective efforts become coordinated in some ways, in some way to expand upon the boundaries that will inevitably exist. And that I think is, is a way station towards this global governance that we are all uh, uh, working towards. And I think this series of conversations that we're having I see it, and I think Kurt sees it as well, as a new level of functional organization so that um, the great work of the ELs and, and many others who are not part of the ELs, I mean, this is much larger than, uh, than that, can, can achieve a new level of coordination and, and organization to go beyond our current boundaries. So I'm done. <laughs> yeah, so David, yeah, thank I hope you so much. And we've got a good uh, 15 minutes or more here that you guys can interact. I was just going to mention, you know, when you were reading that passage that all of us are really John Galt III's. We're all in the midst of that epiphany and in the midst of the blowback and the attention in all of our sectors from that epiphany. And sometimes when you've looked recently as the, at these demonstrations from the far right, you see someone with a sign that says, call me John Galt. And I think we're gonna see in the future, many people carrying the sign, call me John Galt the uh, third, because that's, it's interesting that that's where we're at and even in the growth of that family and now the human family. So let's, let me turn you guys loose on each other. Uh, good 15 minutes at least, I think we can do it popcorn style. You can just start whoever wants to begin a chat. So Jude, yep. Yeah, well, thank you, David, for that, and, and all of you. I, I, the, what I'm missing in this conversation is a sense that cooperation is a deeply experienced way of behaving. You can't intellectualize, in my experience, cooperation. And it's an integration, really, of, of heart with head and hands. And I, I've got my PhD in archaeology. Uh, my master's is in physics, quantum physics and cosmology, but my PhD is in archaeology. And I researched that period, that seminal period, that our moment of choice period, something like 6,000 years ago, when the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age, moved and the hunter-gatherers of the Middle Stone Age became the, the, the herders and the farmers of the Neolithic. And I live in a beautiful part of England near to Stonehenge and Avebury. And I'm a trench monkey, so I, I go over the ropes and go and, and see all this for myself. But what came very powerfully across to me, and especially when I was doing my PhD, um, which I titled Walking Between Worlds, because it really was a transformation of worldview. From a, from a worldview of hunter-gatherers who did cooperate, 
who saw themselves as part of the web of life and just part of that, not more superior nor less superior. And all the indigenous folks that I've worked with, learned from over many, many years, continue to have that, that wisdom teaching at the heart of all they are and that cooperation at the heart of all they are. And that 6,000 years ago moved from being that perspective into a very different perspective and worldview of who people were. And the difference was actually reflected in the art and the sacred science and the culture. And the big, the big takeaway for me was how an, a cooperative society where men and women had worked together. And there's an old saying, it takes two columns to hold up the sky. There had been that sort of cooperative um, working together. And even in the Australian Aboriginal extended family that I lived with for some time, there was women's work, there was men's work, but it wasn't more or less important. It had to come together for the health of the, the, the community to go forward. And yet when that change happened 6,000 years ago, that level of cooperation where men and women came together was, became very different. It became a more weaponized society instead of egalitarian um, burials where men and women and children were buried together in long barrows. There were men, almost always men, with a lot of armor and bling under round barrows. And so it seems to me that if we're going to really remember and heal ourselves and move forward, and vulnerability, I agree, is, 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 is vital for this. We have to open ourselves if we're going to do this. Part of that is that coming back together into a sacred marriage of the feminine and the masculine. And I'm not gendering it so much as I am in terms of its attributes. But yeah. I would say feminine attributes are a willingness to be vulnerable, are a willingness to open our hearts when we know we'll be hurt, are a willingness, and I saw a photograph of the tsunami on Boxing Day in the Indian Ocean, and it's an amazing photograph. It's behind, looking towards the sea, there are two small children with their backs to the sea, and the tsunami is bearing down on them, and it shows the back of their mother, and she must have been terrified. But the terror for them was greater than the terror for herself. And she ran towards that tsunami and all three of us survived. There's something about us being willing to open our hearts even when we know they might be broken as part of this healing. Because otherwise... Uh, let, me, uh, let, me, let me have Dwayne have his turn. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I, there's so much I want to say, but I feel like I want to have Dwayne... Um, at his comments, and then uh, and then um, I've made notes here, so I, I, um, uh, uh, so Great. Dwayne, please. Thank you, David, uh, and Jude. A um, couple of uh, things come to mind for me, and and one is, how do we get beyond the story of individualism and separation? And uh, we pointed to that again and again already in this conversation. Uh, the idea that the universe is a unified whole, it regenerating itself in its entirety at every moment. And uh, so then unity and connectivity is not something uh, we choose, it's what we are. Uh, 
we are part of a larger living organism, the living universe. And uh, from that mindset, from that story, uh, we're no longer in a struggle for survival in a dead universe. We're learning to live in this deep, large aliveness of a living universe. And that then is the foundation for moving towards cooperation that Jude was speaking about, uh, th that gives our moment of choice validity. We can choose to live in this larger aliveness as a, a scientific reality that's being affirmed uh, in the field of physics and so on. So that would be one uh, comment I'd like to make. The second is uh, turning to uh, something David was saying, and that is the power of story. And we need a new story that replaces the simple story of survivalism in a dead universe. Uh, and I'm su I've suggested one already in my comments that humanity is simply growing up. And we're growing out of a sense of uh, meanness to we-ness. And the we-ness is uh, founded in this larger sense of reality. Uh, as a living system, a superorganism. So we're growing up into this larger aliveness. Another story is that, well, humanity is just waking up. And we've all spoken about the power of the, of the new media and the world enabling us to come together for the first time as a human organism and choose our pathway ahead. Another story that's, that's very common is that we're giving birth to a new species at this time. And it, it isn't so much a, a physical uh, species that's being born. It is the depth and uh, capacity for vulnerability, for love, uh, for engagement, for cooperation, collaboration that is being born as we wake up and as we uh, then grow up. So, David? All right. How much time do I have, Kurt? An hour? Three hours? Oh, yeah, we can keep going. We're only at about 45 <laughs> minutes now. So, yeah, we can go for a while. Well, no, I'm, I'm joking. I can, I, I'll, uh, I mean, hopefully what we're doing is we're giving our audience a taste and then, uh, and then guidance. First, um, Jude, on the, um, on the point of cooperation be ex being experiential, absolutely. This is totally heartfelt. Um, and programmed into us genetically, at least at the scale of small groups. That is a major theme of Atlas Hugwork. Small groups appropriately structured. Small groups appropriately structured is as close to a utopia as we're ever going to get. Small groups of people doing meaningful work. And what could be more meaningful than collectively surviving and reproducing? Um, uh, in a way that's protective against uh, bullying and uh, exploitative behaviors. Uh, is as close to a nirvana as as um, we will ever get. And in the in Atlas Hugs, small communities of all kinds, the, the school that he goes to, the church community, uh, the redneck community, if you bring people together and you have them share their stories and humanity, and they become, they start acting like family in a single uh, day. I do scientific research with a wonderful man named Jim Cohen, and uh, who's a um, clinical neuroscientist, and he's developed something called social baseline theory. But what that theory is, is that because of our history living in small cooperative groups, our minds and our bodies seamlessly integrate our personal resources 
and our social resources when making our trade-off um, a decision. We don't even distinguish. And that means that when you take an individual away from a small group cooperative context, you automatically put it into a stress zone because you've taken away the social resources. That's how deep it is. So I want to, I want to emphasize a thousand times over that this is experiential. And also that the more people actually work together, do things together, and especially do hard things together, then the more bonded they become. That's why our parents, my father certainly, always described his World War II experience as the best time of his life because he was working with his buddies under life and death circum circumstances. Now that said, I think it's very, very important not to romanticize, especially hunter-gatherer people, because what they did have was that kind of cooperation and nurturance at a, at a small scale, that often extended to women, not always. It's all a matter of power. It's all a matter of power and being able to collectively resist bullying behavior. Uh, men were typically able to do that in small scale societies and often women were too. And to the degree that, that human beings can resist bullying, that's the degree to which they can function in this cooperative mode. But when I was reading about the Schwar in preparation for writing Atlas Hugged, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm primarily a biologist, but I have a joint appointment in anthropology. So I know the anthropological literature pretty well, Jude, and the archeological literature um, uh, too. But when you read the actual ethnographies of the Schwar, what you find is very small groups fortified against each other. If you looked at the actual structure of their homes, you found that there were barricades because at any time somebody could come into the night and slaughter you. So, and you know, probably both of you, that estimates of mortality was that if you were a male in some of these small scale societies, your chance of a violent death would be 25 to 30% that you would die a violent death. And it actually required Christian missionaries coming in in order to create a larger scale and basically pacify the, uh, those societies so that they didn't just, uh, the incessant raiding and warfare didn't exist at that scale. And as to, their, as to their relationship to their environment, very often they would move into a spot, they'd, they'd create their gardens, they'd cut down the trees, and they'd hunt out the game, the game until they until they basically overexploited their spot and their, and their gardens became weedy and then thankfully because there was so much territory they'd move on and they'd repeat it in some other place but they didn't have a conservation ethic why would they why did they why did they need it and so this is only to be expected from a evolutionary perspective and Jude, go ahead and and I know that you want to, to reply but I, I mean I is do. this not is this not what the science says yeah, absolutely. On a later scale, it's really interesting because I think this is a really important question. Certainly when you go back 6,000 years, and certainly in that transition from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic that I looked at in detail, there was not that level of conflict whatsoever. It was far more egalitarian. There's a long barrow just by me 
that had something, I think, 43 skeletons in it over a period of time, of which a third were children, a third were female, a third were male. All the evidence that we have going back that far within certainly the, the Britain that I've studied extensively did not have that level of conflict and that level of resource depredation. So my question really is, it's not so much it's just a hunter-gatherer aspect, but it may be of itself some form of evolutionary process that the Schwa have come to that perspective. And I've seen that elsewhere. I mean, in Papua New Guinea, um, there was huge amounts of, of indigenous conflict recently and a level of need to, to, to really tamp that down. But I'm going back. So what I'm really asking the question of, how did that level of cooperation that we see as far as we can see in the record around 6,000 years ago be, you know, you know, eroded as we go forward. And we know it did into the Bronze Age because there was this real weaponization and you start to get hierarchies in society. Yeah. Yeah. And so the about people, indigenous folks who are still in the, you know, have got to this level of dysfunction. Yeah. So, so basically, one thing I want to point out, this is very unsettled. So if you look at the experts that are that are studying and writing about this now, there's not like consensus up at the up at the um, um, up at the top. But what I think can be said, and it could be said for human culture, and it could be said for nature, is that the degree of cooperation and conflict that you get, of course, depends on the environmental context. If you look at the relationships among species, you find everything from conflictual relationships like competition, parasitism, predation, to cooperative relations, uh, mutualisms of, of, uh, of all sorts. These are all strategies, basically, that, that um, evolve or do not evolve, depending on the underlying context. And so if you look now at human cultures at any stage in history, if it was the case that there's some stage in history in which there was very little conflict, only cooperation, that would have been because of a certain environmental context, such as groups so dispersed, for example, that there was no point in, in between group. Um, that would be the reason, it would be the immediate environmental context. And so that, that I think is an optimistic thing to say because it automatically and it tells us in a modern context, if we want to, if we want to um, um, create social environments that brings out the cooperation and, and then and then prohibits the the conflict, well, we have to create the context. We can do it. We can do it right now. Don't have to wait. Don't have to wait for any future stage. And what happened in past stages is interesting to know, but but um, don't need it. And and um, in the Getting to, to Dwayne's uh, comments and also getting back to Atlas um, Hug, the, one of the epiphanies that John III has is that although he, as he studies nature and he learns that, you know, nature <laughs> in, in most cases is it's like a ghetto out there. It might, might look peaceful to us, but uh, if you look at the relations, for example, between sexes and many, many species, it's as horribly dominating as the Buddha said, life is full of suffering um, out there. But what the epiphany for John is that if you want to find a world free of suffering, look inside any healthy organism 
look inside any healthy organism and there you'll find more or less total cooperation, everything working on behalf of the whole. And um, that's not just true for organisms surrounded by membranes, it's also true for the social insect colonies. You look at a beehive and the bees are dispersed throughout the landscape, but they're still an organism because, they're, because they've been selected as a unit. And so therefore, if we want to eliminate suffering in the world, then we have to make it more like an organism when it's not. So there we get back to Gaia. We need to make, we need, we make, we need to turn the whole world into an organism. Then we will have eliminated self-imposed uh, punishment. That's our project, is to expand the concept of, of, of organism only then, and that we must be the agents of selection. And so to, to, to make a distinction between what an organism is and what an ecosystem Ecosystems are, to a large extent, conflictual because that's the environmental pressures have, have done that. So I think that these narratives that we create, uh, some of them, most of them are effective as narratives. Yet that's the final point I'll make. I, I should never use that word final, but, but, uh, but um, um, is a narrative needs to be judged in two Ways. And this brings us back to Ken Wilber's work and uh, his cosmos, which I love to, to invoke, um, uh, four quadrants, basically. Um, on the right, uh, on the left is just the, our worldviews, which are incredibly diverse and, and pluralistic. On the right, more or less the scientific worldview. You need to judge a worldview on, on, on both of those um, uh, size. First of all, the stories that we tell, how much does it inspire us, motivate us to do the right thing? That's one metric for the stories that we tell each other. And then secondly, how well do they accord with some kind of scientific account, which is much more restrictive in terms of what you can say is right or, or, or wrong. And, and I know Ken Wilber's own narrative is about growing up and waking up and is about stages of human history and, and so on and so forth, which works well as a, as a narrative. Um, I feel, and this is where, of course, more time will be required, when we judge that scientifically, then I think that, that um, uh, instead of a sort of a stage theory, uh, then there is this more of a set of a, a, an ongoing, continuous, never-ending Darwinian contest between pro-social behaviors and anti-social behaviors in which the, the, the outcome of that contest depends on the social environments that we construct for each other. And so rather than a stage like cosmology, if we say this is in the present moment, we are constructing social environments to favor pro-social strategies at all scales from the single person all the way up to the planet we are niche constructing is one of the common terms for it. We are architects. We are the 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 architects of our own social environment. And modern knowledge provides the know-how for what to do. And technology provides the the um, 
the means. And I think that can be both a strong narrative um, and also can be the actual scientific uh, blueprint. Okay, so um, uh, more fire hose. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we're on to just about an hour here. What I wanna to do to wind up is to, uh, and this has been amazing, and it could go on forever because this is what's happening in the world. I want to give each of you a chance for a couple minutes for the takeaway that you'll advise to, uh, to uh, the listening audience. We've done this in each segment, and they've been amazing. So let's start with Dwayne. Dwayne, what would be the takeaway that you would want the audience to uh, take with them? Let's see. Uh, one takeaway, and it, it differs uh, somewhat from what David is saying. Uh, the idea is that trauma is our teacher. Trauma is our teacher, and uh, it's not something to move beyond, but rather to bring within. And we're being pushed by necessity, pulled by opportunity. And if we only look at the opportunity and ignore the necessity, uh, we'll be unbalanced in our in our evolution. So if we bring it all together, look at the uh, the universe as a whole living organism of which we are an integral part. We're learning to live in this larger aliveness to the extent that we are not. We are exper experiencing the trauma of that disconnection. So the universe uh, provides the trauma, the push of necessity to move us uh, towards this new uh, opportunity that's being communicated so well uh, in our moment of choice. Oh, thanks. So Jude, over to you. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. I, I, I agree, Dwayne. And I think Ken Wilber does talk of this, too, in the sense of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, which I think is resolving and, and releasing some of the trauma. And for me, the trauma is so, has been so driven by our fragmented worldview and the illusion of separation. So healing that process, healing our worldview so that we can come from that perspective of, of unity in diversity, I think it's key. Once we're able to at least journey along this, because I agree with David, it's not a, a, a sort of a linear sequence. It's a sort of a dance and it goes back on itself and all the rest of it. But once we've sort of helped ourselves to clean up, then we can show up in the world. And I add to that, then we can link up and then we can and lift up. So that's when that sort of balance of collaboration which optimizes the, the competition as a healthy way of, of resolving and balancing and co deep cooperation and, um, and coherence. And I love what we've been talking about ultimately. Einstein called this a circle of compassion, where we expand the me to include the we and to include the whole. And I'll finish by saying what that enables us to do is to act local, feel global and think cosmic. And I feel we need those levels integrated in terms of, of, of our steps forward at this moment of choice. All right, David. Right. Uh, the last type from you, David Clone Wilson. Well, that's great. I feel I just maybe I should just say amen to that. But uh, what uh, Jude, what you just said is uh, very um, um, represented by the stack of symbols that represents the true objectivist movement in Atlas Hugged with the uh, Earth on top. Um, and the individual at the bottom. And then in, in between, we have small groups and, and our existing uh, uh, institutions, such as nations and so on and um, uh, so on and um, uh, so forth. So uh, this has been uh, so great. And, um, and the fact that it's uh, only one episode of, uh, 
of other episodes, I think, as a sign is that maybe we are on the cusp of a, of a uh, transition, basically, where we uh, communicate with each other and work together, show up, link up, um, um, uh, even more than we, than we uh, have before. So I look forward to that. All right. So thank you so much, uh, Dwayne Elgin and David Sloan Wilson and Jude Curavan. And to the audience now, we're going to be going back to the studio and we're going to meet you after this message from the publishers from our moment of choice, evolutionary visions and hope for the future. This message from Beyond Words, Simon and Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Welcome back to the Convergence on Voice America. This is your series host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. In the next segment, Dr. David Sloan Wilson will discuss the implications of Atlas Hugged in the context of the work of two other major thought leaders, Terry Patton of the Global Integral Community and most recently author of New Republic of the Heart, and Anne-Marie Forhoove, founder of the Hague Center for Global Governance, Innovation, and Emergence. Full bios for both Terry and Anne-Marie are at the Voice America show page, and you can learn more about Terry at terrypatton.com, that's P-A-T-T-E-N, and about Anne-Marie at thehagecenter.org, that's H-A-G-U-E, thehagecenter.org. So let's go over now to that discussion. I'm here with Anne-Marie Forhoof, Terry Patton, and David Sloan Wilson. And so let's start with uh, Terry Patton. Terry, tell us about your work and how it relates to this moment of choice that we're talking about between Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged. 
Well, my work uh, over the last uh, six years is uh, focused on the themes of my recent book, A New Republic of the Heart and Ethos for Revolutionaries, which took me in a new direction. Uh, it is a moment that is in many respects apocalyptic. We're all aware of how fast the accelerating complexification of culture and society are knitting together a whole series of existential civilizational crises. It's not just climate, it's not just politics, it's not just any one of probably a dozen different crises we can name. Many people are calling it the meta crisis. And its implications, in my view, and I think the view of most of us, require such radical whole systems transformation, transformations at the level of every individual heart, transformations in even the way we relate with one another, transformations in groups, transformations in organizations, transformations at every level of our being. And quite honestly, because everything is so profoundly interconnected, almost no one has a completely coherent strategy. There's too much chaos in the system for any single point of intervention as if we could design command control. Our entangled universe is full of a dangerous kind of apocalyptic entropy and accelerating intensifying disorder fragmentation right now. And yet, we're seeing all around us also a resurgence of what I like to call wholeness, we could call it goodness. And th this is being enacted by people in so many diverse ways that if we step back and really look at it as a whole, it's as if we have this multifaceted gem of wholeness reasserting itself, almost like an immune response to a disease in the midst of a crisis of fragmentation. And much about that is beautiful. However, it tends to be that the hypercomplexity of our challenges, because it exceeds the cognit any cognitive mo modeling of any individual or group, is really requiring something more radical, more primal, I would say, that inherent goodness, wholeness, uh, is expressing itself in a whole variety of ways. And essentially, we need to practice it. And as social beings, the way we practice it is with one another. So I uh, found myself feeling that it was no longer possible for me to do what I had been doing, which was to teach relatively privileged people in the Western world about integral theory and practice and spirituality. It was personal growth, but to some degree that began to look to me like um, accessorizing the ego, that uh, privileged people having better and more whole and seemingly fulfilling lives is a beautiful thing. I'm one and I want those things myself, but it's a time for a revolutionary response, a, 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 a radical transformation. What would make that possible? Well. I realized I didn't want relationships with just students. I wanted relationships with fellow revolutionaries. And I, I use the R rather than just calling us evolutionaries because the 
apocalyptic moment requires, well, it's full of already without our doing, adding anything to it, uh, disruption and disruption at, at, at many levels. And we're going to be responsive to radical disruptions. I, I'm talking to you from where I live here in Northern California last month, for a full month, last year rather, for a full month, uh, our skies were choked with smoke. And we are currently at less than our half, half our annual rainfall and clear skies forecast into the future. We, we don't know where we stand. So the, uh, the disruptive events are inevitable and they'll be coming upon us and they will be heartbreaking and it is a time for us to be deepened by all of this in a way this primal level in which we are deepened and grief in a way as a transformative uh passageway it's like you have to cross the river of grief to find your way to the proactive joyful grateful kinds of participation that are healthy. Well, when people drop into their horrified recognition that we are all complicit in uh, the destruction of the life conditions necessary, not just for our own grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but the great-grandchildren of all the other creatures that we're in a, well, not all, but many of the higher creatures, we're in a, a, a critical moment that breaks our hearts and being together in that heartbrokenness, but not merely in that, but in a, an awakeness to the wonder and miracle of every moment of conscious embodied existence. Something in the inherent wholeness of this entangled universe, something uh, profound that is not just our good idea or our strategy for reforming the world surges forth and this is a depth of being. It, and so the leadership that's necessary, I often call yin leadership. We lead more by granting our attention, our full feeling embodied resonance to reality and to one another. And not to skitter off shocked and contracted in the face of all that seems threatened, but deepened into loving contact so that whether we get to live through a great hospice project or a profound transformation of our world, we are there as a presence of wisdom, love, mutual support, and sanity so that our friendships with one another empower each of us to be a secret agent almost of coherence in the midst of this crisis of fragmentation so that we are secret agents of a kind of wholeness and love. And I have, faith is not quite the right word, but not knowing what will happen, I'm also so present to the fact that the story of evolution is the story of miracle after miracle after miracle. And that to imagine that our best assessment of things, mostly using Newtonian models of reality, uh, dictates that we're just headed for extinctions, societal collapse, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we need to be a little more humble before the miraculous positive forces of evolution. And armed with that, a kind of wonder and a kind of co-conjuring of emergence become 
the essence of every human friendship. So becoming true spiritual friends to one another and everyone we meet is the work that I'm focused on. And I think that this is a new field in a way, that learning how to be the change we want to see in the world by doing it together, not abstractly studying it as, a, as, a, as an academic field of study, but the learning by doing that goes on, okay, let's do a social experiment. Let this small group try to embody something better. Every one of us will succeed to some degree and fail to some degree. But as we recognize that we're part of a collective learning process, we'll exchange our best practices and empower one another. And as that field becomes self-aware, I think that there can be a rapid scaling of our coherence such that something powerful can actually have societal impact at the scale necessary to this crisis. So that's what I'm up to. Yeah, wow. I mean, we had said wow to all the other presentations today. And so we have a, this is our fourth wow. Uh, Terry, thank you so much. And so in sync with the conversation that we just had with Duane and, and Jude and David. So Anne-Marie, uh, take a turn and tell us about your work and how it abuts on this big moment of choice. Yeah, well, I think I can build on quite uh, nicely on Terry's work and view. I'm, I'm really dedicated to co-create from the heart and find ways of working together that have an impact and serve life for all with a focus on the balance of the masculine and the feminine and seeing how that can really come into a kind of a dance and flow. And, um, and I've, that's kind of been, that is my purpose in life. And I have followed that in different ways um, throughout my journey um, around the world. And I, I feel this time is um, really, for, for me, um, enhancing my capacity because it's actually acknowledging that as a way of working, whilst I've also been in contexts where it was actually not seen as, a, as such a good way of coming together and working. Because I'm not so much rational-minded, but very much more intuitively working. Um, so I'm, I'm founder of the Hague Center uh, for Global Governance, Innovation and Emergence that I set up within the context of the Center for Human Emergence in the Netherlands with Peter Mary and many others, um, really rooted in planetary consciousness and the whole worldview uh, with Jude, worked together with her, uh, working very closely together with her and the community to find frameworks that can really help us to be in the present now from this think cosmic, feel global, act local, um, which I also turn around as act local and realize I can be in that global context and also see how I can come into that cosmic context. And, um, and of course, which I have also learned a lot from um, uh, Irvin Laszlo and Don Beck and the other evolutionary leaders with which we've been working for many, many years. And we, we are an organization and a co-creative collective serving the emergence of a conscious harmonic humanity, really innovating these heart-centered ways of working with all domains of life, visible and invisible. And 
and invisible, really seeing how we can develop more capacity to really listen to the collective field, to get our, let ourselves be informed, not alone, only by our own mind, but by our whole body, a full body experience, but also about everything around us, nature, but also using specific tools and techniques like systemic constellation work and other kinds of ways of letting ourselves be informed in the choices that we make from this realization that we are inherently connected and interrelated to everything and that there is wisdom at so many places that we have access to, can have access to. And for me, it's also like there is so much more and there is an inherent curiosity to find new ways of accessing that. And I really want to thank you in that sense, David, for the way that you have now put your more scientific background into, um, into storytelling, into a way that is accessing, is more access for much more people, which, um, as you know, Kurt, is very much also the vision of NetSpirit with evolutionary leader Hugo Francone, that we have been working on to see how we can have exactly that happening this scientific notion that can be spread in a way that we can understand it or at least relate to it so that that can help us open ourselves up to other possibilities. And in that way, um, yes, it's actually find more our natural place in the order of life because I think that's such an important part of what we're needing to do. So if we say, if you go into nature, you can come into a more mindfulness state, somehow that has to do with the appreciation and the wonder of nature, hasn't it? So to, to be able to see that it is in that sense connected and, and interrelated and helps us to open our hearts so that we come in these different parts of our brain and body that make us become more, uh, make more, perhaps compassionate, uh, wise decisions, or at least come into some part of ourselves that are more um, in harmony, um, in balance, or an expression of ourselves that we want to be showing up like that at the moment. And, and that is... I think that's what we're what that we are practicing a lot, and that is inherently available for everybody. But of course, it's the privilege that it's more easy for some to, in if your life conditions are in a way that you don't need to be in a survival state. It's a very different setting than when you are in those kind of life conditions, and somehow it's about connecting to the heart that can help us and to the full body, um, to our really grounding ourselves um, that can help us find ways in these times. I'll stop here for a moment. Yeah, wow. David, now, now this, this will land really where you started even earlier today, so you're going to love this. So, David, take a turn. Yeah, it's such a privilege to be talking, having these conversations again and again, including these two. And uh, 
Uh, there's so much that I want to say. I want to begin with uh, Ken Wilber, actually. And uh, I did not have him in mind for my character, John Galt One, but I could have. Uh, it's quite interesting that as a young man, he went to college and he was searching for the secret of life and his ambitions were so large that no major could con contain him. And, and um, he even has the tall, manly looks of uh, John Galt um, uh, three. So I find that fascinating. And I also want to base my little sermon here on his cosmos, his diagram, which uh, includes four quadrants, um, as you know, but I'll remind our audience. Um, on the left side, there's our rich meaning systems, which are, that's what animates us. Um, they're richly diverse and pluralistic. On the, that's on the left side. On the right side is more the world of science. There's where things can be, there can be more of a right and a wrong to our factual knowledge. On the top is the collective and on the bottom is the individual. And when we look at our meaning systems <clears throat> in all their diversity, there's three things that we can ask about them. We can evaluate them on the basis of three criteria. One is how animating is it? How much does it inspire you how, to get you out of bed in the morning brimming with purpose? So that's one question. Next question, what does it cause you to do? Because a, a meaning system can be highly animating, but cause you to do things that are self-destructive either to yourself or to others. And number three, how well does it accord with our scientific knowledge, the right side of the cosmos? So for me, the trifecta the meaning system that I want scores high on all three of those. Highly animating, causes you to do the right thing, and fully accountable with our, the best of our scientific knowledge. And if we think of that framework and then we take a, a book um, and the meaning system it conveys of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, what we can decide is that it scores very high on the first criterion. It's highly animating for those, for those who step into that world. It is definitely um, uh, fills them with, with purpose, but does not cause you to do the right thing, leads to destructive behaviors now on a worldwide scale, and is in fact not in accord with the facts of the world. And I did want to read, I have two passages I want to read, one to make this point, and then the other in honor of you, Anne-Marie, and when you say that you operate in more of an intuitive mode. But in this passage, um, John Galt III is the grandson of John Galt I, the protagonist in Atlas Shrugged, and uh, his grandmother is Ayn Rand. That's my avatar for Ayn Rand. And his father is uh, John Galt II, is a Rush Limbaugh figure who has built a media, neoliberal media empire, and is basically um, in league with Anuantu's grandmother. So, as my father grew from a boy to a man, he became a full partner with his mother in directing the objectivist movement. On his 13th birthday, she disclosed that she had no contact with John Galt I, who could be dead as far as she knew. She maintained the fiction for the sake of the movement. She hoped he would understand, and he did. John Galt II had observed his mother long enough to know that she had no scruples about constructing her stylized universe. Truth had no value for her. 
She only cared about effect. Once this awareness dawned upon him, he watched with admiration as his mother plied her craft. She was like a mosaic artist using truth as her tiles. If a particular fact fit, she would use it intact. Otherwise, she would clip it until its shape was just right. Remaining gaps were filled with wholesale fictions presented as fact. The completed work of art acted like a magic spell to convince people of the reasonableness of the objectivist creed. The biggest deception of all was to call the movement objectivism as if it could be fully validated by rationality and science. And the idea of being a mosaic artist using truth as your tiles, I think, is one of my favorite metaphors from the book, especially in this day and age when we're just awash with fake news. And we know that when you go over to the dark side of, 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 of constructing your meaning systems and your communication, everything you do purely for effect and truth has no value to you, then you, we get what we have. Um, um, uh, now, and it's very, very scary. And so I, I think that uh, there's a responsibility on our part to make our meaning systems um, very respectful of the facts of the, of the world. And so um, I'm in a maybe even a unique position to try to hit that trifecta of, of um, a meaning system which scores on all three of those criteria. Why is that? It's because I'm a mainstream scientist. So I'm in possession of the best of our knowledge about about um, evolution. I'm the son of a novelist, so I hopefully I can tell a good story, spin a good uh, uh, yarn, and that's what I've attempted to do in Atlas Hard, in order to motivate people to do the right thing, which is what we all have apprehended, is that we need to consciously evolve our futures with the world or the whole earth in mind, starting where we are and also forming into groups. I was so uh, gratified to learn you emphasize that yourself. And um, Terry, I just loved it when you said that, you know, for, for so many people, um, uh, personal growth is like accessorizing the ego. And um, I made the same point to uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, a year and a half ago when Kurt and I went and, and I had my conversation with him that so much of this movement ends up um, when it works, transforming the inner life of the individual person as if, if only we could make a person compassionate in their inner life, then, the, then what they do will just unfold. No, it's not that easy. There has to be a transformation of the outer life in addition to the um, inner life. And that's a real matter of, of, of social construction, as I'm about to, uh, as I'm about to get to. But uh, Anne-Marie, I just wanted to uh, read another passage, which is from uh, Angelina, who is uh, John Galtry's second love interest. She's a journalist, and she's been brought along with a group of journalists to spend a day with John Galtry. And in a single day, they have grown into an intimate group, then something about the day and what they've done has bonded them into a single group, even though they were strangers um, uh, before. And most of these journalists are, are um, well, I, one thing about the book is that I have thinly disguised real people. And so, so Bill Moyers is there, is Bill Noyers, and George Wills is there, is George Mills, and Natalie Angier is there, is Natalie 
something else, <laughs> just like Angela. But Angelina is a Latina journalist who's just kind of making a go of it. She's mystified why she was asked in the first place. And so um, they're uh, sitting around a campfire at the end of the day, reflecting upon their experience. Angelina was the last to speak. She had become emboldened by our earlier conversation on the roof. I feel so humbled to be among such greatness. Who am I? A mere Latina girl trying to make a go of it as a journalist. John, what amazed me most about today was how you put me at my ease. You acted as an equal rather than a superior. You served us food that you prepared yourself and even cleared the dishes. You attributed your self-confidence to your mentor, not yourself. Despite placing, despite placing yourself on center stage in your battle with your father, your real message is the need for all of us to become part of something larger than ourselves. I have no way to pass judgment on all the high ideas about economics, the enlightenment, and technology. But when I just listen to what you say, it makes perfect sense. It makes me wonder if my empty head might be an asset. This elicited a burst of laughter and appreciation, not only because it was funny, but also because it had such a large grain of truth. For all of the others, their full heads were the main impediment to adding anything new. I'm also a believer in following my heart in addition to my head. By heart, I don't mean romantic love, but something that pulls you for reasons that you don't pretend to understand. One nice thing about following your heart is that you don't put a probability on success. You just go for it, no matter what the odds. That's what my heart pulls me to do after only a single day. It's like falling in love at first sight, not for a person, sorry, John, but for some ideas. You can be sure that I'll be questioning my own judgment, just as someone who falls in love with a person at first sight does. But at this moment, all I can say is that I am smitten. And I think that um, what I want to, um, to draw from that, of course, is heartfelt. And I learned that from Kurt, by the way, um, and, and the ELs. Uh, before I met Kurt, I was really a pretty straight-laced Ivy Tower guy, operating mostly in the head. And, and, but uh, then Kurt helped me to, to uh, loosen up. And I remember, especially at some of the meetings where I think we were at, um, uh, some of the rituals, basically, that, uh, that caused people to, to really merge into some kind of group uh, organism, at least mentally, through the through ritual and drumming and shared activities and even privation. Um, and so these are all things that we want to draw up on and come most naturally at a small scale. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the and so the entire challenge is to scale up, is to scale up, is to do what is deeply natural. Although that doesn't mean it comes automatically. It's it's like small groups appropriately structured. And that appropriately structured is huge because even a small group can go bad unless it is appropriately structured. And I think I'm going to end on that note. It's a, it's a theme that I've only started to use during these conversations, but I think it's so important that I'm going to repeat it again this time around that when we talk about love and hugging and all these great things that we want to bring about and we talk about their power and we say that it's the next stage of humanity. And the one thing that we, I think gets lost a little bit uh, about it, about love and all of its uh, uh, forms is it's vulnerability. It's vulnerability that when we act in a loving fashion, we make ourselves 
vulnerable to more disruptive, self-serving behaviors. Always and forever, there is a Darwinian contest between our loving behaviors and our more disruptive, self-serving behaviors. And so as we construct our groups, small and large, we have to construct, construct them, structure them so that they protect us against those behaviors to provide a safe social environment so that people can extend their loving natures. Everyone has a loving nature and everyone is capable of turning it off under conditions in which it might be harmful for them. And most everyone has harmfulness in their repertoire. They can play it both ways. And so it's a matter of constructing social environments using the best of our scientific knowledge to build up this superorganism and to extend what comes naturally, which doesn't mean it's automatic, at a small scale, and extend that to a worldwide scale. It's, it's an engineering project in the good sense of the word, like the International Space Station, a huge cooperative effort that we need to engage in together. So I'll, I'll end there. Right, so over and out to either or Anne-Marie, Terry. Yeah, if, if it's okay, I'd like to respond. Absolutely, go ahead. Because um, because I, I, I thank you, I appreciate also that you read those parts. Um, and the way she, you were speaking about this, uh, this lady about, you know, how she took these steps. It's, if you look at how I... Um, bring how we bring together teams we use those steps but then in the reversed order so it's really about sensing and feeling into the 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 impulse of the idea of the creative idea that I want to be manifesting or a solution that we are or a problem that we're tapping into and 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 I, for me I don't need to have all the clarity exactly in words but I need to have feel it in my body and it comes through the heart, but I feel it actually in my womb. I feel it in the lower chakras coming and I, I can sense this is something and this is what we want to connect to. And then it's about gathering a small team. And actually I was inspired by a biologist in the nineties when I was living in a di totally different context, but he was sharing about the Nautilus shell and I've never really looked into how it truly was, but the story he was sharing then was that that shell that is so delicate can um, resist such a huge pressure of the ocean because it starts in the middle and it really first builds its container, its first part with great precision. And not until that is there, then it continues with the next. And that inspired mm -hmm. me to build teams like that. So I first start that I feel myself, this is something deep truth. This is something deep truly. And then I expand to either one or to two so that we get the triangle and then feel that kind of connection as well and try and find words, of course, for it or expressions or art forms. And then when we have that sense of security where we can also be vulnerable, then we add it to four, five, six, seven, and then the magical power of eight and first work through that. And sometimes people feel like it's a slowing down, but I know it's a slowing down to speed up after that because it enhances the self-organizing capacity. 
for it to exponentially grow after that. Because if that core group uh, of eight then really have a sense of the direction and of what their piece of the puzzle is that they bring, which always is about what makes your heart sing if you connect to this purpose while we're together. That is actually my most important compass. Does it make your heart sing? Then it is something that you either, it's either because you really, or it's not either, it's what you really have to offer as a flower in the bouquet. And I can trust if we're in that space together, connected to the purpose that we are in, that that is also what that field needs because of the way that we are working with the field. And, and then with that small group, you can expand actually exponentially and in quite a short time have much more smaller groups connected to that larger whole that are all connected and have some kind of coherence. So the, the challenge then is, of course, is how to keep checking and what kind of feedback loops we create to keep checking whether we're still in that coherence. And, and the, the teachings that I, re, re, that I, you know, that we went into with, uh, with um, uh, Irvin and with Jude Caravan, with the fact that we're in a holographic um, uh, nature and that there is a, fra that we can trust the fractal nature of, um, of reality if we're so centered and aligned, is that the it's more easy to have access to the simplicity beyond the complexity. That's what I, that's what, how I've experienced it as a, as a social architect. So the zooming out, zooming in is something that if I am not standing in the way with my ego, if I am really that open canal that is can let it flow through that I can then trust that, that, if I find a solution, if something is so big, I either zoom in, make it smaller, or I add diversity to it so that it becomes larger. And then I can look at solutions or see where the acupuncture points are that we have to be working on. And that is when we then use our tools to listen to the field. So the Nautilus shell is a very important Metaphor for me, how to build teams and how to build groups quickly and to make sure. And that's also what we are practicing actually with the Sci Network with John Raymer. It's always that way of looking at it. Um, uh, and also using the heart intelligence as the way, but the deepest truth I can feel in my womb. And it's the, I know I'm a female, so I have that access. I think that you also have that somehow a space there deep down and you sense it in a different way. Perhaps I can't, I don't know how you sense it, but I know you have that too. I can sense it. I can see it happening when, when you drop into that lower space and then there's a power and a, and, and a, and a, and a radiance coming out where you know, and it's nearly irresistible in that sense that we're onto something and that there's this balance and this dance between protecting us to be vulnerable in that space and to then dance together. And that is the beauty of the work. 
amazing. You know, I was thinking when you were when you were describing your small groups, I was thinking, wow, that must be the Congress of the New Republic of the Heart. So, uh, Terry, this is right up your alley. So, what is uh, what is your response to this so far? You know, one of the core questions I remember asking myself oh, a decade or more ago was how, how can cooperation compete in this capitalist world I'm living in? And uh, David, your work has been a uh, delightful inspiration in uh, grappling with that infinitely deep question, actually. It's a koan, a, a teaching question that transforms not just, uh, you don't have an, you don't come up with an answer. You live that question, like Rilke said to the younger poet. You live and love the questions because they, they are a cauldron of your own transformation. My experience has been, even in the most successful groups, I, was, I had the privilege to be raised in a pretty successful intentional community. I spent the first half of my adult life in an ashram. I've been in communities my whole life. And community is hard. I love humanity, but people, oy. and uh, the the challenges are emotional challenges. Everyone is wounded, traumatized. This is a world in which there are multiple collective traumas of every kind. Every woman, every person of color. Every, but apart from that, if you're rich, famous privileged in every possible way. Life is still hard and there are traumatic marks that cause a kind of reactive uh, contraction. People who are going to cooperate have to find contact with one another in a way that doesn't just bounce around on the surface of those phenomena. So my curiosities have to do with modeling qualities of friendship and extending them rather generously. And I imagine this may have to be wasteful. It is as if we have to scatter our love the way that uh, salmon scatter their semen into the, uh, into the waters of the, of the creek. You know, most of them are going to be wasted or, 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 the, or the, the thousands are progeny of an octopus, you know, that we may have to offer an awful lot of love that will seem not to fall on fertile ground in order for this seeding process to be effective. But there is an ecstasy in that impregnation of the possibility that is inherently self-fulfilling and a brother-sisterhood of mutual empowerment to do that work at deeper and deeper levels. Every one of us had better be learning as we go because however elegant and articulate and beautifully formed our current strategy may be, it had better keep evolving in this highly, highly hyper complex and rapidly complexifying and accelerating uh, and broken, beautiful but broken uh, human civilized world. So my, you know, where I'm landing in this is not so much to say something articulate, but to drop in to the place where maybe we each can befriend one another and befriend anyone hearing our voices and be a source of people being less alone 
in their goodness. Our goodness is not isolated, despite the games of the Randian, libertarian, every man and woman for himself, that, that seems to be hard-bitten reality. No, there's a, there's a, there's a an inspiring reality of mutual love in which we're willing to waste our love into this world because that makes a life worth living. Wow. So we got more wows here, Kurt. Um, so wow. uh, uh, I've lost count of the wows, but um, I think what I'm hoping that will come from this series of conversations centered on the evolutionary leaders and radiating beyond them is a more of a collective effort to achieve this trifecta of a meaning system, which is um, uh, highly motivating, causes us to do the right things, and can fully claim the authority of science. And if you look at where we are now with respect to that, I think we're one step away from a kind of a quantum jump in, in being able to do that. And one way to phrase that is that what we are trying to do is, and let's take our own narrative seriously, we're trying to consciously evolve the future, right? That's what we say to ourselves. But what does that really mean? An evolutionary process includes three components. First, there must be some target of selection. We have that. Then there must be variation to select upon. Well, we have that in abundance. I mean, each and every one of us who is attempting this is a variant and often a highly successful variant. We're all doing it in different ways actually. So we actually have a rich field of variation to select upon. But in order to do that, there must be some kind of evaluation process. There must be some way that we can I mean, learn about the way we're doing things in our group building efforts. That's multi-level by the way, there's not enough just to form people into groups, that's just step one. Then those groups have to get together. They have to coordinate into what we call the meso level and, and so on, all the way up. I mean, a superorganism, just take that seriously. A superorganism, an organism, multicellular organism, cells, organ systems, dozens of regulatory circuits, all of that is what we must do at the global, at the global uh, uh, scale. So I think that what can be done is for, um, and now the the uh, real world side of me with pro-social world has developed a method of working with groups which is you know, very sciencey. And Marie, it's it's um, it's uh, very different from yours in that in that respect. And we do have a spiritual component of it with Jeff with Jeff Denung, pro-social spirituality, but for the most part, it is super sciencey. And, 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 um, um, and what I would love to do is to partner with each and every one of the ELs that's engaged in group uh, building efforts to basically together say, how is this going? I mean, you seem to be very successful. You're hugely experienced. You develop these techniques and you combine all kinds of knowledge from your experience and your academic knowledge and all of that, and you're doing something that works really well. So we wanna know what your secret sauce is. At the same time, uh, 
How well are you doing? I mean, you know, um, wouldn't you like some numbers? Maybe you're already taking numbers, but, you know, for all of the groups that you form, how many still exist one year later, five years? What's their death rate? What, what's, what, how do they, do they form new groups? Does this, do, do they, do they join up? Do they, so I think. Oh, I would that, love that. I would, and, and, you know, we have in this, in our center for fuel inquiry, it's exactly that, that we're looking for. Yeah. You uh, might so, already be doing that well. No, no, but I would love to, to, to expand that yeah. in a way that it does serve also our purpose because we have in the past done some research that through the research actually it was close if if I speak for myself because my my team our team is not all doing it the same way but for me then you know when I close my heart then I can't perform and I can't do the work that I'm doing so I have to find that but yeah thank goodness I have others in the team that are much more scientifically underlaid and who really love to do that uh, so it's that combination, but a lot of it that we've been doing, we haven't found up till now that many resonant scientists that want to go along. Yeah, well, we can, we can, we can help with that. And yes. it's so exciting because when you, when you think of it, it's just like this is the part of that trifecta. Is it highly motivating? Okay. Is it actually causing us to do the right thing in this world? That's a complicated question. That's a really complicated question. Even when it's well-meaning, it might not. There's a passage in Atlas Hug where uh, John Galt III says, here's what I've learned in this world. The evil in this world is usually not caused by evil people. It's caused by good people under the spell of a bad story. We don't know what we're doing. We think we're doing right, but it turns out we're not. And 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 so... There needs to be some assessment. So science comes in at that particular juncture. It's not threatening. It's just like it's telling you what you need to know. And then it's on that basis that we can just take stock and we can see what's working, what's not. We could make an adjustment. That's an evolutionary process. That's conscious evolution right there is managing selection, variation, and replication and survival. That's what a conscious evolutionary process is, and it combines the best of the heartfelt component and the bodily component plus the scientific component. And I think that it's just a matter of deciding to do it. Well, uh, I mean, I, and, I mean uh, and, and if I look at some of the things that we're starting up now, like, for example, with the, we're looking into an inquiry with some uh, intergenerational interaction. So the, the art of that, what and how does that serve? And what does that actually mean? And we're exploring that with uh, different generations and also now starting with the younger ones. So the 20, the 20, 30, that age group. So this morning I had a, I was having a session with them as well. Um, so I would, uh, yeah, I think that would be great to really see how we okay, can well, do it. Okay, so we're right now at about uh, 50 minutes, and what I've been usually doing here is asking each of you to tell the audience what your, your suggested takeaway would be from this discussion. And so, Terry, why don't we start with you? What would you like to tell our listeners might be the takeaway? When you care and it seems as though you're living in a dog-eat-dog world and that you who are caring are alone and somehow oppressed. 
take heart. There are, there's goodness in every human heart. And there are many, many people who have been practicing their goodness strongly. So that when you act on the basis of your deepest care and truth, you're actually acting with the strength of 10,000. And with that encouragement, go ahead and dare to waste your love in this broken, beautiful world. So Anne-Marie, what's your uh, suggestion for the takeaway after uh, that showstopper? Well, one of the things that I do, especially when I don't know exactly what to do, is go out in nature. And that can also be sitting with your plant in your room, wherever it is, it is. And just look at it really, and then see if you can formulate what makes my heart sing. And can I dare say that and then trust that that is something inherently good to try out and take just one first step and then feel it again and take another bold step and feel it again and share it with some others. Because in the sharing, you're telling the story to the others, but you're also telling it yourself and you're getting that feedback that we were speaking about. But in the tiniest is also important. And you can also just look and wander up into the sky and see the vastness because that also can open, help you open your heart. So and I hope that gives you some hope. hope. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Don't know where the echo is coming from, but David, it's your turn. <laughs> okay, well, I have um, a great optimism, a great sense of optimism, despite all this bad and all that seems to be going the wrong way and, um, and the likelihood of dark times ahead. Um, I think that uh, I have a real sense that um, not only do we have a kind of a compass, and so, and it, it is a change of mind, basically. It begins with a change of mind, a certain kind of inner transformation that, that then gets manifested in an outer uh, transformation. And uh, no matter how dark the times, the, the idea that you do have a compass that you know that um, a path basically is um, highly energizing. And then my final thought is that um, uh, this need not be slow. And in, in the novel, it takes place in a hundred days. And a major theme of the novel is the idea of cultural catalysis. Catalysis in chemistry, you know, a catalytic agent can speed up the rate of a reaction and can make something go a thousand times faster even when added in small amounts. And so the idea that there can be cultural catalysis, that we can, we can actually not only have positive change, but it could be, it can take place in a matter of years rather than, than decades is within the realm of possibilities. And it, it, it is what takes place in the novel, but it can take place in the real world. And so, um, and I think the evolutionary leaders are a beautiful place to start. Okay, well, thank you so much, Anne-Marie Forhoove, Derry Patton, and David Sloan-Wilson for what's been a, a rich discussion. And so you in the audience, we are going to join you again in the studio right after this message from the publishers of Atlas Hugged and from Pro Social World. Hey there, this is David Sloan-Wilson, eager to tell you about my new novel, Atlas Hugged, a sequel and antidote to Ayn Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged. Even if you never read Atlas Shrugged, 
You probably know that it has been hugely influential in providing a moral foundation to the greed-is-good individualism of our times. In contrast, not only does Atlas Hugged provide a moral foundation for pro-sociality in all of its forms, but it is based closely on modern evolutionary science, so much that what happens in the novel can actually take place in the real world. Atlas Hugged is so anti-Rand that it isn't even being sold. Instead, it is gifted for whatever the reader wishes to give in return, and is available only at atlashug.world. All proceeds go to the nonprofit organization ProSocial World, which seeks to bring about the vision of Atlas Hugged in the real world. So hugs, and back to our programming. Well, welcome back to the studio, and a big thanks to our guests, Duane Elgin, Jude Curavan, Terry Patton, and Anne-Marie Forhoof. We're going to wrap up these two Voice America specials with an intriguing discussion about story, the nature of stories, and how stories make and change our world. How will they likely shape this discussion about Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged? So with me now for that discussion are Dr. Linnea Lombard of New Stories and Great Transition Stories, Dr. Robert Adkinson, founder of the Story Commons and author of the Nautilus Award-winning The Story of Our Time, and Tayana David of The Circle of Wisdom. Full bios for all of them are at the Voice America show page. And you can learn more about Linnea at newstories.org and greattransitionstories.org and about Robert Atkinson and the Story Commons at robertatkinson.net and about Tayana David and the Circle of Wisdom at circleofwisdom.org. So let's go over now to that discussion. I'm here with Linnea Lombard, Robert Atkinson, and Tayana David to wrap up this part two of our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged. I'm going to ask each of you to speak a bit about your take on the importance of stories, how they work, and particularly the stories that background Atlas Shrugged and Atlas Hugged. So I want to start with Linnea because Linnea already spoke on a program of the Evolutionary Leader Circle about this subject and said something that I thought was very important, that Atlas Hugged had helped clarify some global level issues for her that hadn't been as clear before. So maybe you can tell us more about that and other insights that you may want to offer as we wrap up these discussions, especially in light of what you're doing at New Stories and Great Transition Stories. Thank you, Kurt. Let me start with story. Stories hold us. We're always embedded in the story, whether or not we know it. And one of the quotes we have on our website, New Stories, is we don't live in the world. We live in our stories about the world. And stories have the capacity to hold us, teach us, guide us, uh, give us meaning and purpose in our lives. And what we do at New Stories is to try to name the stories that are transformational, that bring us into um, healing and wholeness. And some stories don't do that. Some stories 
um, are somewhat um, dead end, like the story of Sisyphus, where you're pushing a rock up a hill and it falls down. And people find themselves in this story. You keep, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and it doesn't work. And there's a point at which it's time to get out of the story. There are other stories that lead to disaster, um, like some of the end time stories. When I read Atlas Hugged, I was able to see a story that I had not been able to see before. I saw the, um, some of the manifestations of it. I remember seeing the film um, Wall Street with uh, uh, the character Gordon Gecko and his statement, greed is good. And I, I, I had a visceral reaction to that when I saw that film. And I've had visceral reactions to other kind of hints, like some of Paul Ryan's uh, talks, which seemed like only, you know, 30 to 40 year old white men uh, who are physically fit were kind of worth being taken care of. Uh, and some of the trickle down theories of um, uh, Reagan and other politicians. But I didn't get the whole story. I've been working very much on uh, evolutionary stories for a number of years and trying to look at what stories bring us into wellness and uh, well-being, and really trying to put together a biomimicry, as it were, of stories that are life-giving and life-affirming, and those you can find on our Great Transition Story site. But I didn't get the full impact of the economic story particularly. And the thing is, in order to move out of a story, you have to be able to see it. So the gift of David's book for me is that I was able to see a story that I only had glimpses of. And, and more than just seeing the story of um, self-interest or greed being a motivating factor and um, huge competition, what really surprised me since I had not read Ayn Rand was the power of the story to be communicated in a fictional form that has so influenced our whole system for years and years. And I began to be able to see outside of that story, which helped me embrace it. You know, when, whenever you want to change the story that you're in, you have to be able to see outside of it. Uh, and where it goes, where does the story go? You know, QAnon is a story that holds people and gives them direction. But if you look at what that direction is, it's toward really killing an awful lot of people. And that's not a life-affirming story. And what's beautiful about Atlas Hugged is that it presents a story that is aligned with evolution and the principles of cooperation, collaboration, working together. And from my point of view, we're not going to get through the huge issues that face us as a world without all of us working together. Well, Linnea, that is so insightful and just so uh, just in line with what all of our other guests have uh, said. Uh, so now I want to go over to Robert Atkinson, also because Bob said something in the introduction to part one of these specials 
that still rings so true. And that is that the structure of any story is actually, he said, a beginning, a muddle, and a resolution. And he said that Atlas Shrugged represents the muddle and Atlas Hugged represents the resolution. So maybe, Bob, you can tell us more about that and also any other insights that you might want to add, especially as a co-editor of our Moment of Choice and having co-authored with me the epilogue to that book and also all of your work at the Story Commons. Sure. Thanks, Kurt. What we need now is a resolution to the muddle we're in. Everyone is talking about how a new story is emerging and what that will be. I'll say more about that in a minute. My take on the nature of stories and how they shape and change our world is similar to Linnaeus in that stories get to the soul of who we are. And that's because we're the storytelling species. We think in story form, speak in story form, and bring meaning to our lives through story. Stories inspire, teach, and guide us. Storytelling is truth-telling exactly what the world needs now for collective reconciliation and harmony. Telling our stories is a way of empowering ourselves and others by tapping into ageless universal themes, motifs, and archetypes that we all share as human beings. Doing this fulfills the four classic functions of mythology by bringing us more into accord with ourselves, others, the mystery of life, and the universe around us. And there are only a few thousand possible story types, or what folklore calls tale types, that we can even experience. And maybe only a couple hundred of those that represent pro-social oriented types of behaviors or actions that do lead to personal growth and transformation. And these are the story types that storycommons.org is all about. Our individual stories reflect the collective. So the same timeless universal pattern of story plays out on both levels. We are collectively coming out of a muddle and moving toward a resolution. That's how stories shape this discussion between Atlas Shrugged and Atlas Hugged. And that's why people like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, who were so familiar with mythology, have a very important perspective to offer. And there is a very interesting connection between Jung, Joseph Campbell, and David Sloan Wilson in relation to the new story we are living into. Jung said in his autobiography, relating his own life to the greater whole, that our myth has become mute and gives no answers. That's because the true meaning of myth is a guiding story that needs to be alive and growing providing inspiration and direction. We're not getting that from the current story. It lacks a resolution to the muddle we're in collectively. Missing from the prevailing story today is an evolutionary perspective. Jung was very aware of the evolutionary nature of everything when he said, the real history of the world seems to be the progressive incarnation of the deity. He also said, it seems to me that we are only at the threshold of the new spiritual epic. So for Jung, there is evolutionary progress to be made and the characteristics of a new guiding story are that it would carry a deep truth, be universal, continuous, 
and enduring, all of which are the characteristics of a classic myth. And when Joseph Campbell talked about the myth of the future, he related this to the idea that the unity of the human race, not only in its biology, but also in its spiritual history, has unfolded like a single symphony advancing toward a mighty climax. He added to this, the only myth that is going to be worth talking about in the immediate, in the immediate future is one that is talking about the planet, not the city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. And that's exactly what David Sloan Wilson is talking about in Atlas Hugged and his work in evolutionary science. He is saying that there is a direction to evolution and it's leading us toward larger and larger circles of unity from the individual to groups and communities to nations and finally to the whole planet as one super organism. This is the process that is built into the principle of social evolution. It's all about expanding circles of cooperation. Evolution is leading us toward the recognition of what will most contribute to the betterment of that whole. And his work is clearly showing how a cooperative pro-social orientation with behaviors and actions to back that up will inevitably lead to a future in which all things are not only interconnected, but also function as a living, evolving superorganism in harmony with itself. That is what the new story of our time is about. The other thing that links David Sloan Wilson's view with Jung and Campbell's is the three questions he says we need to ask about the new story. First, is it motivating and inspiring? Second, does it cause people to move toward compassionate action? Third, does it comport with what we already know from the great wisdom traditions? And these are exactly the same questions or classic myth or guiding story answers and that the new story emerging will also answer. So yes, the resolution to our collective muddle is in Atlas Hub, as David Sloan Wilson is pointing out. And there is so much common ground between science, spirituality, and classic mythology. Well, Bob, you know, thank you so much. And boy, that's also such a great lead in to where we hope to go in future discussions about this with so many of our colleagues. So I want to go over now to Tayana David, who, along with Kit Thomas, hosts the Circle of Wisdom, which also collects stories and reflections from across cultures, traditions, and around the world. So, Tayano, why do you think this discussion of stories and their role is so important? And where do you see this work going in the future, especially in regard to your work in media and at the Circle of Wisdom? I think you're on mute, um, Tayano. Sure. Thank you, Kurt. And I really resonate with everything that Linnea and Bob have shared so far. I'm sensing a common theme of moving from a smaller scope and a more narrow understanding to a larger, broader, more inclusive story. Stories, of course, are important and have been since we were coming back from 
hunting and picking berries and and telling our fellow family members where to find them and and what happened when we were away. Um, They'll continue to be important. They, They really offer a reflection of who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. As soon as a story is codified, whether it's in spoken word or in a book, in a movie, on a television show, it then becomes something that reflects us back to ourselves. And there's a tremendous amount of power in that, as we have seen with Atlas Shrugged and how that has shaped generations of of leaders and politicians and public policy, how that united whole groups of people in ideology. So in reframing, as David Sloan Wilson has done with Atlas Hugged, you know, just the name I find so powerful to reframe Atlas Shrugged and the visual that that is, who cares? I'm shrugging. to Atlas Hugged, where the heart comes in and and the caring comes in, you know, shows us the power of language in two words. There's a completely different feeling tone, a totally different message, and a new narrative begins to be birthed. Speaking of reframing, I want to reference something that Pema Chodron said recently. We could be walking down the street and there could be people asking for money or asking for help and they could be a nuisance or um, perceived as annoying to someone who is not on a spiritual path perhaps or has not awakened compassion. However, that experience will be completely reframed If you are someone looking for opportunity to practice compassion, if you are someone who is committed to your own evolution and the evolution of humanity, that instead of being annoyed or feeling maybe even fearful, you welcome that experience as one that is providing you the opportunity to grow and practice. And so the way in which we frame our experiences, the way in which we relate to the stories around us is, I think, a really important aspect of all of this. And I'd like to bring that into talking about our work at Circle of Wisdom. We speak with many different people, over 200 thought leaders so far from all different cultures. And... The way that we interview asks them to speak from a certain place deep inside them. And this is very important when we're asking people to share their stories. How are we asking them? Where are we inviting them to speak from? Because only then do we get the full story, the deepest expression of somebody's lived experience that they can share that can be transformative to others. So I wanted to bring that aspect in about where we're telling our stories from. It reminds me of something Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche said. He talked about Dharma art. Dharma art 
is a way of creating art that is creating art that springs from an awakened state of mind. So again, where are the stories bubbling up from? What state of consciousness is underneath the stories? So I think in order to evolve our stories, we need to evolve ourselves. We need to commit to our practices that will allow us to express at a higher frequency, at a frequency of a deeper knowing and a deeper seeing and um, that enables us to really put those, those solutions and that next level thinking out there to be the new reflection that we are seeing back at ourselves so that we can really step up and, and live into these new stories that are, that are all around us. Now, great. Thanks so much. And this is such a nice opportunity now for the three of you to have a chance just to say a bit more to each other. So let's kind of do that just popcorn style. Whoever would really spurred by what you just heard would like to add a bit more. Well, yeah, I'll jump in, pop up. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add on to something Diana was just saying about the, uh, yeah, it's such an important question to think about what state of consciousness are we in is, is bubbling up within us when we tell our stories. And, and that's so important because where the, where the stories that matter come from is our, uh, maybe what we might think of as the, the deepest level of our consciousness, which is where we're all connected as human beings. And so when we do tell a story from that deeper level that connects us all, that's what story has been meant for and meant to do forever, is to connect one with another and, and one with all. So that's a, that's a great place to think about where our stories come from in ourselves. Yeah, Linnea, what would you like to say to that, given that you've been in this business with new stories and great transition stories for nearly a decade now? Um, well, I think... A uh, thing that Bob said earlier that really struck me was the proportion of stories that are pro-social, which is the work that uh, uh, Atlas Hugged is promoting in the world. And once we know that we're in a story, and we all are, it behooves us to look at what story are we in, and is that story going where we want it to go? And, you know, I'm also steeped in Joseph Campbell and the whole <clears throat> hero's journey, which is on our Great Transition Stories site, because it gives guidance of what the next steps are to uh, develop oneself, as Tiana was talking about. Um, and all of those stories end in uh, the hero comes back to the community, which is really what pro-social is about. Once you have done your own personal work, um, then you take your place in the community. So I would just really ask people to look at the story you're in. Is it going where you want to go? And if it isn't, start looking for the stories that do go in a way that looks toward um, a real regenerative future for our planet. And one of the first places you ought to look is Atlas Hugged. 
All right. So, Tiana, what would you like to say maybe just to help us wrap up here? Sure. I'll say that everything that we see around us is an outcome of stories that have come before us, of human stories that have shaped our policy, the the way we care for each other and the earth. So knowing that, we have to understand and respect the power that we have to shape our world. It's really like everyone has their hands on a collective Ouija board and we are listening and different elements are coming through different people, but we're all working together to shape what the next answers will be on the Ouija board that is our planet Earth. And I think that's where I'll leave it. All right. So thank you so much, Linnea, Bob, and Tayana, you know, for these insights and reflections as we conclude what's really been this amazing second special on Voice America. So much thanks to you and to our earlier guests on this special, Dwayne Elgin of Choosing Earth, Jude Curavan of The Whole World View, Terry Patton of The Integral Community and New Republic of the Heart, Anne-Marie Forhoove of Hague's, the Hague Center in Europe, and of course, David Sloan Wilson, the author of Atlas Hugged. So now to our listeners, we still plan two more specials on this question about our world's future. Either Atlas Shrugged, which would be, as our guest Deborah Moldau said, and you also just said, who cares? Or Atlas Hugged, which would be, let's get in the driver's seat and steer this planet toward the world that works for all, that we all know is possible. And from the evolutionary leaders, as you know, we have at least 11 New York Times bestselling authors for us to tap into, and we really look forward to arranging that. So as well in May, we're going to have a special program on the emerging Light on Light Press and its new books and what's happening worldwide from our planet's transformative movements, particularly in light of two new books that they are publishing, True Light and Global Unit of Healing. And Ken Wilbur, speaking on wholeness, will be joining us to introduce that program. And then in June, we'll have our annual broadcast for the International Day of Yoga with the United Nations Committee for the International Yoga Day and with the World Unity Week. And also with Ken Wilbur again joining to talk about a new spirituality of wholeness. Then also in the summer, we're going to have a special discussion on the future of an Earth constitution. So a lot coming on the convergence on Voice America. So keep that all in mind, and it's easy to find us. Just Google the convergence on Voice America. So thanks again for joining us on our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged, parts one and two. And if you haven't listened to part one with the makers of the important film, The Reunited States of America, and David Corton of The Great Turning and so many other books, please jump over to that in the archive list at our Voice America show page. Just Google the convergence at Voice America. So until we see you again, stay safe and lots of love from 
all of us. I search my way through wreckage, try to find a piece to save. Was it a hurricane? Was it rain? Was it a warm tsunami? An insult to the brave. While all our hearts are mortgaged and our minds are media slaves. The world is warming up as we earn Mother Nature's wage. Just in time, she is taking. Just in time.